before Jonathan steps up, I think it'd be really good just to honour Jonathan uh, because he has been a wonderful leader of Church Central and we have given him a hard time at points. <laughs> but he has led us with wisdom, uh, with a love of the Bible, with a love of Jesus and for me at least, teaching me to Jesus, love Jesus more. So as he comes up, can we give him a big round of applause? Shall we pray? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we love you and we love the way you work in our lives. We uh, love the way you speak to us uh, individually, so tenderly, uh, so lovingly, so precisely. Uh, we love it when you come close to us as a church and speak words that bring strength to us together. And want to pray that your word would come in all of those ways now. Uh, I pray your word would zoom in on each of us individually, bringing hope and bringing freedom, bringing life, uh, bringing heaven's perspective on our situations. Uh, and for us as a church, Father, please speak. Please continue speaking. Please continue working deep. Uh, in us uh, to cause us to be the beautiful bride for Jesus your son that he deserves that he warrants uh, we want to grow up into all the things you have for us and so though we might be a bit tired right now we want to do our best to listen to you knowing that your words bring life to us amen well, if you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, not just this morning, uh, but this evening uh, and tomorrow morning as well. And so before we dive in, I thought it probably would make a little bit of sense to just look at the context of Ephesians as we're going to be spending a while in it. Uh, we're going to be joining uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, like I say. And so, very quickly, I want to bring you up to speed with what has happened uh, in the letter and in the life of the Ephesian church up to this point. Now, uh, as some of you may or may not be aware, uh, it was actually the Apostle Paul uh, who started or planted the church in Ephesus. Uh, Paul spent uh, a whole three years in Ephesus preaching the gospel to the whole city, uh, developing brand new disciples, followers of Jesus, uh, establishing a community, and then raising up elders to take care of the church so that he could then move on uh, and plant and establish more churches further afield. However, sometime after all of that, uh, Paul uh, found himself uh, in prison. And while he is imprisoned, he remembers his old friends back in Ephesus and decides to write this letter back to them to establish them a little more firmly in their faith. Now, in the first three chapters of this letter, I think it's fair to say that Paul has been laying some pretty in-depth theology into the church. He's been explaining in quite some detail what our salvation is all about. And he ends chapter 3 with the glorious prayers that um, was read over us uh, a little earlier on by Liz, the glorious prayer for us to experience all that God has made available to us in Christ. However, as we now enter chapter 4... 
It marks a bit of a turning point in this letter. Paul is effectively saying, in light of everything I have just said, here is how I now want you to live all of this out. And as you live all of this out together in the church, in your work, in your families, as you live this out in all of these different contexts, then it is this powerful powerful demonstration to the world that the gospel is not only true, but it actually works in everyday life. And so all that being said, I want us to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 4 and see what Paul has to say to us. He says, therefore, uh, as a result of everything I've just explained, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord. So uh, just to pause there, Paul, uh, I suggest, has got a little bit of credibility. Uh, Personally, he has counted the cost for believing this message. He's found himself in prison for it. So I would humbly suggest he's well worth listening to. He says, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now, just by way of a very quick aside, uh, regularly I hear Christians in the church here and further afield, uh, I hear followers of Jesus bemoaning the fact that they are unsure of their calling. Uh, I don't know, maybe that's you. Maybe one of the reasons you have come this weekend is you've been praying, God, please show me what I'm called to do. Uh, Now, if that's you, Today could be your lucky day because I'm about to divulge specifically for you what God's call is on your life. Um, Paul says, basically, you are called to know God. So if you what, what am I called to do? You're called to know God, primarily. Secondly, to seek first his kingdom. You got that? Seek first his kingdom in every area of life. And thirdly, to grow in maturity as a follower of Jesus. So if you're wondering what God's will is for your life, what his call on you is, well, kind of five minutes in, now you know. So you can kind of sit back and relax the rest of the time. Now you know God's call on your life. So I don't want to hear any of you kind of walking around saying, well, I haven't really got much of a calling I kind of wish I knew what God had called me to do. No, actually all of us are called together to do the same thing. And Paul goes on to say that he wants us to live worthy of our calling. So straight away, there is a purpose for each of our lives. And here's how Paul goes on to flesh it out. Verse 2, he says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. 
That is why the scriptures say when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now then, if I was to do a little bit of a survey, I don't know, kind of pass the mic around and ask you to kind of share what you think about the purpose of the church, I reckon I'll probably get a whole range of answers from you. If you think about the purpose of the church, maybe for you, the church is primarily the place you attend on a Sunday for a little bit of worship and to listen to some preaching. Or perhaps for you, the church is primarily the place where you come for the sake of relationship, friendship, community with others. Others are driven more by a sense of a cause, by the desire to do good to others. It's like all of us, we're coming from different places. We all have our own individual expectations, which means that the task of leading a church is particularly challenging because, let's face it, it is impossible to keep everyone happy all of the time. But for those who know me well, you'll know that I didn't get where I am today by trying to keep everyone happy, as you may have experienced. However, I'm not here after your sympathy this morning. I'm not kind of playing for the sympathy vote. Because even though it can be painful at times, and as I think it was pointed out by Gemma a bit earlier, it kind of has led to a little bit of flack coming my way in the way of some of the other leaders from time for time time to time. At the end of the day, myself and the other leaders in the church here would rather keep submitting to what God has said to us in the Bible. And what we see in this pretty stunning passage in Ephesians 4 is that God's purpose for the church is so much more than it merely being about a meeting that we attend on a Sunday. God's desire is for us to be this healthy, growing body that is becoming more and more and more mature. And for this maturity really to spill over into all of our life. 
Now, in Paul's mind, uh, the signs of a mature church, as laid out in this passage, well, there are three things. First of all, unity. Uh, Unity, which is strengthened as we treat one another with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with forgiveness, with love, with peace. So, first thing is unity. Secondly, diversity. Diversity with each individual part using their gifts to strengthen the whole so that we grow together in our knowledge of God and our understanding of the truth. So unity, diversity. Thirdly, multiplication. Multiplication as we, his body, are joined with Christ in his mission to see him fill the whole universe with his glory. So three signs of a mature church. And what we thought we'd do this weekend is simply unpack each of these three crucial aspects of a mature and healthy church so as to ensure we're all on the same page here. So we all know what we should expect of the church, and not just from this church, but really from any church. Now, just to say, uh, I'm aware we've got a number of guests and visitors here. Uh, If you're not a Christian here this weekend, or if you're new to the church, first things first, you are incredibly welcome here. We love having you among us. You're our guests. uh, we, We feel like you are already part of us. We love you being with us this weekend. And I'll just say that this talk, um, without wishing to blow my own trumpet, is actually going to be great for you because it's going to give you a clear picture of what the church should be like. And so before you even consider joining a church or perhaps submitting your life to Jesus, you're able to see what it's supposed to be like. You'll know what it is you are committing to. And so If you're here as a guest, listen up and see, well, is this what this church is like? Uh, And for the rest of us, I want us to grow up into this stuff. I want to give us something to aim at and be working towards more and more. And so, all of that really was the introduction, not just for this talk, but for the next two talks. So I'm doing other people's work for them as well. Uh, So that's the introduction. Without any further ado, I want us to jump in. And the first thing we see in this passage is that the church God longs for is a united church. And so in verse 3, you might have noticed it, Paul urges us to make every effort to keep yourselves united. And then in verse 13, we're told to continue until we all come to such unity. In other words, then, this unity that we are called to as a church is both a reality to be maintained and a goal to be attained. If you like, Christian unity in one sense has already been accomplished And in another sense, it hasn't. I want us to start by looking at the unity we already have together. I don't know if you noticed it, uh, but as we read this passage in verses 4 to 6, Paul uses the adjective one a whopping seven times. He says, for there is one body and one spirit, just as has been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. It's like, Paul really doesn't want us to lose sight 
of the fact that as a church, we are one. Uh, And he wants us to see that our oneness isn't dependent on what we think or even how we feel. Ultimately, it's grounded in the work of God himself. We are one primarily because we are in Christ. That's our identity. We are in Christ. And as long as we are in Christ, this oneness, this unity doesn't change. Earlier on in Ephesians, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, Paul spells it out like this. He says, but now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. A magnificent description of who we are in Christ. Through his death on the cross, Jesus has already made us one. Our our oneness is grounded in his finished work for us. And so whatever our race, whatever the color of our skin, regardless of our gender, our age, our education, our postcode, if we share the same beliefs, the same convictions about Jesus, if we share the same confidence in him, then already we are united together as one body. And this is a unity that Paul says has been worked into us by the Holy Spirit. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's the Holy Spirit who sets our hearts free from irrational, self-defensive prejudice so that we're able to own up to and accept true convictions about Christ. The Holy Spirit works this into us. And as he spells out in Romans 8, it's the Holy Spirit who enables us in the first place to have faith in Christ, to cry out to God with confidence, Abba, Father. And so the Holy Spirit helps us to grasp the unity that Christ's finished work on the cross has enabled us to have with the Father. Now, all of that being said, let me just bring a few words to clarify this. The point of all of this isn't that all Christians should feel the same way about everything or have the same kind of reaction to various issues or that we must have the same interests and the same passions, and the same preferences. Part of the power of the unity that Jesus has already given us is that we are one despite our many differences. 
In fact, God's design is for us to use our many differences to bring strength to the whole. And as we'll see later on today, uh, we all have a part to play in this. Uh, we, We all desperately need one another if we're to grow in maturity and be the church that God wants us to be. And so if you're here this weekend and you're thinking, well, I don't belong or I don't fit, I want you to hear from me. We need you. That This church would not be the same without you. The fact that you might feel different is what qualifies you most to be a part of us. You have a unique part to play that will bring strength to the rest of us. However, the fact that we're different does present some challenges, doesn't it? I mean, it would be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it, if we were all the same? That the fact we do come from different backgrounds and different cultures and that we do all have our own different preferences is both a thing that makes our oneness profound, but it is also the thing that poses the greatest threat to our unity. To quote Tabiti Anyabwile, there is only one power on earth that is capable of destroying the church. And it's not the powers of Satan or hell. It's not the power of persecution or opposition from outside. The only thing with power to destroy the church is Christians. Which is pretty much the same point that Paul's making in Galatians 5 verse 15, where he warns us, if you are always biting and devouring one another, so later on when we have the kind of inter-sight games. I don't want to see any biting going on. Anything else goes, but no biting. Uh, Paul says, if you're always biting and devouring one one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Listen, the most serious problem facing the church, this church and any church, is from within. We alone have the power to destroy the unity that Christ has given us. Which I think is why Paul appeals to us in Ephesians 4 to maintain this unity before then spelling out that there are certain things we can all be actively doing to attain a united church. And for the rest of the talk, uh, I'm going to get incredibly practical And if I do my job properly, this is going to get pretty challenging for all of us. You ready for a bit of challenge? Well, there are six things uh, in ten minutes or so. Six things that Paul encourages us to focus on. Here's the first one. If we're to attain the unity that is ours in Christ, first thing he says is always be humble. Always be humble. Now that word always, or completely, as it's put in other translations, got to admit it's a bit of a problem for me. I mean, I can show a little humility at times, but complete humility all of the time is another matter altogether. You know, nothing threatens the unity of the church more than our pride. 
Pride is our deadliest foe. Pride wars against our individual souls and it rages against the church. Nothing destroys the witness of Christ quite like pride does. For starters, pride won't admit it's wrong. Pride says things like, well, I'm sorry if I offended you, as though the problem was all the time with the other person for getting offended. Like, what I said actually was fine. The problem was more with how you responded to what I said. That's pride. Whereas complete humility admits, look, I admit I spoke harshly to you. I acknowledge I was unloving when I said those things. I'm gutted that I was so selfish and so hurtful with my words. Please, I'd love it if you could find it in your heart to forgive me. Please forgive me. That's humility. And that's what we're called to as a church. Now really, the heart of the problem with pride is it doesn't consider the needs of others. Pride claims for itself the right of first place, as though everything and everyone centers on and revolves around me. You know, so many people treat church as something we come to in order to get something for ourselves, or worse still, we come as a critic looking for things that we don't approve of, because It's all about our own personal preferences. It's all about my needs being met. It's all about my convenience. And the moment that something happens to threaten that, then we lash out or we leave altogether. In short, pride destroys the unity of the church because it exalts itself above everyone and everything else. It flows from this sense of entitlement, like, I deserve this, I deserve that. Which I think is pretty ironic, really, because without Christ, the one thing we all deserve is the eternal punishment of God in hell. That we earned. Forgiveness is what we got through grace. And remembering that should keep us always, always, always humble. And so I want to plead with you this weekend, let's bring our hearts before Christ. And let's resolve to crucify our pride. And let's do all we can to work to be humble. And let's not merely settle for being thought of as humble, while beneath the surface we're still secretly this seething mass pride. Let's not settle for that. Earlier on uh, in the prayer meeting uh, at half past seven, uh, 40 of us were in the room, which I was pretty pleased with. There may be even more tomorrow morning. In that prayer meeting, George brought a word uh, about a metal box of pride and that God was wanting to bring his chainsaw, not just any old chainsaw, his diamond encrusted chainsaw, I'd quite like one of those. He's going to bring his diamond-encrusted chainsaw and demolish this metal box of pride. George didn't have a clue what I was going to be speaking on. God wants to demolish pride in our lives. 
He calls us to sacrifice ourselves and our attitudes, our preferences, our relationships. He wants us to understand that our life isn't all about us. It's about something, someone much bigger. It's about laying down our lives for others, just as Christ laid down his life for us. So won't you be honest? How are you doing with this? Are you putting your needs above the needs of others? Are you thinking of yourself as fundamentally more important than the church? Or are you always humble? That's the first challenge. Ready for five more? Yeah, bring it on. Secondly, we're also commanded here to be gentle. Gentle. In many respects, our unity as a church depends on us being gentle with one another. So again, let me ask you, are you gentle? Or are you more like a hedgehog? Are you prickly? If people come close to you, do they get jabbed? I mean, by its very nature, a hedgehog creates space around itself. Others don't want to get too close. It's like nobody unifies with a hedgehog. Are you prickly or are you gentle? You know, no one embodies humility and gentleness more than Christ. In fact, in Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus uses those exact two words to describe himself. He says, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. And so Paul is simply encouraging us to be more like Jesus. Be humble. Be gentle. And then thirdly, be patient with each other. This literally means be long-suffering towards aggravating people, which I think is a challenge because people are annoying at times, aren't they? Aren't they? Yeah, if I keep asking for response, you'll agree even more. But we are called through it all to be patient with each other, to not have a short fuse, to not be constantly out for revenge, to not give them a piece of our minds. Don't know if you remember. There's this one famous occasion, and I'm paraphrasing ever so slightly, but there's this one occasion when someone comes up to Jesus and says, if someone sins against me, am I allowed to change church? And it's like, no, just sort out your differences. Well, well, what about change sight then? And Jesus says, no, stick around and forgive them. Well, how many times do I need to forgive them? Jesus says 70 times seven. In other words, quite a lot. Look, there is no other community in the world that offers that kind of patience. It's only found in the church. I mean, when you get the best part of 300 sinners all under one roof, like we've got this weekend, and I know we're saints really in Christ, but we do misbehave every now and again, and through sleep deprivation and being close to people and wanting a bit of space to yourselves, every now and again we kind of let our old selves out a bit. So uh, bear with me in this. We, we're sinners under one roof to one degree, 
I think there's going to be plenty of opportunity for us to work this out this weekend. And we absolutely must work this out because if we don't get this right, then what's our message to the world? We've got to model the solution to the world, not just the same old problems. And so we need to be patient with each other. Fourthly, following on from this, Paul speaks of making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10 verse 12 says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. It's like love throws this huge blanket over the faults of others, not to smother them and suffocate them and kill them, uh, but so we can't see it, so we don't primarily see the faults of others, so we're not repeatedly focusing on them. Now, why does Paul say this is how we should live? Well, here's why. Because this is how Jesus has treated us. He's our model That's why John 13 says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. I tell you, this is substantially better than treat others as you would like to be treated. No, this is love one another as Christ has loved you. But at the end of the day, this isn't primarily about us feeling more loved It's all about mission. Jesus says the point of all of this is so that by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Listen, there is so much more at stake here than just having a happy, loving church. Now, we want that, but that's not the end goal. There's a whole world out there who need to know Christ And in a world that is full of spite and backbiting and gossip and division and relational breakdown, perhaps the most compelling apologetic for the good news of Jesus is a community who make allowance for each other's faults because they are loving each other with the love Christ has shown them. Now, I know this is tough, but Paul says very emphatically at the beginning of verse 3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Make every effort. I mean, Paul doesn't leave any room for excuses here. Make every effort. That's what we're called to do. And again, I want us to feel the challenge of this. Are we making every effort? to keep ourselves united in this way? Are there further steps we could take to make allowances for the faults of others that we're not making right now? What further effort could we make to demonstrate love for others even when we feel like they have wronged us? Because this isn't optional. Every single one of us is called to make allowance for each other's faults because of our love for one another. But then fifthly, to balance all of this, Paul instructs us in verse 15 to speak the truth in love. Now I guess 
if we're honest, all of us tend to fall more on one side than the other here. We either are more on the side of truth than love, very quick to give people a piece of our mind, because we want to speak the truth to them, or we emphasize love more than truth. Like, I could never address that. I mean, I, I just want to care for the person. Actually, neither of those extremes, neither of those poles are the genuine thing. Out of love, God both prunes and corrects and confronts us and also encourages and builds us up with words. And so for starters, I want to urge you to be quick to encourage others with your speech. If over the course of this weekend, and in fact beyond this weekend, you find yourself thinking something positive about someone else, don't keep it to yourself. Let them know. Speak it out. Let's be quick to encourage one another. And if we're working in our own lives to be completely humble, then surely we won't mind if we receive words of correction from others. I mean, how will I conquer my pride if no one ever points it out to me? How will I grow in my patience if those around me don't patiently speak to me about the impatience they see in my life? Or how will you ever know that I'm bearing with all your struggles and your faults if I don't lovingly and tenderly speak to you from time to time about them? Think about it. How will others grow if we don't use our words to teach them, to stretch them, to encourage them, to admonish them, to challenge them towards godliness. But here's the thing. None of us can do this if we're not united closely with one another in loving relationship, which perhaps explains why Paul speaks of binding yourselves together with peace. Imagine Tying yourself tightly to others with a rope of peace. You know, that's what God wants to do this weekend. He wants to break those chains that bring division, that bring prejudice, that prevent us getting close to people. He wants to demolish those chains and in the place of those chains, he wants to tie us together with a rope of peace. That's the image here. It's sticking tightly to others and intentionally, come what may, living in peace with them. The question is, do others feel more at peace being around you? Or are you more likely to spread discord and disharmony? Are we peacemakers or peacebreakers? I love how one commentator summarizes this whole passage. He says, we must renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. We must renounce harshness in order to walk in gentleness we must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas in order to walk in patience. We must renounce unrealistic expectations in order to walk in suffering love. 
We must renounce indifference and passivity in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The church is unified and God is glorified when we live with Christ-like conduct. Now look, let's be honest. I think probably all of us have got room for a bit of growth in all of this. And growth is really what Paul is after here. He's begging us to take this seriously because he wants each of us to grow in maturity. As verses 13 and 14 make crystal clear, spiritual growth for the Christian is supposed to be normal. Now that being said, let's not judge one another for where others are at in this. We're all at different stages in this. Some of us are just starting out. We're more like infants, and that's okay, as long as we don't always stay like that, because it's normal to grow up. It's normal to grow in maturity and Christ-likeness. And if you're not growing, I want you to just ask yourself whether it's because you're not connected to the body of Christ closely enough, because we're unlikely to grow by ourselves. God's design is for us to need one another. We're only going to grow to be more like Christ if we're a fully functioning part of his body, the church, of which he is the head. Let me finish with this. If over the course of this weekend you were to sidle up to me and say, Jonathan, tell me what your hope for Church Central is. This is the answer that I would have prepared Let me divulge it with all of you, just in case you're interested. I want this to be a church where you are formed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. I pray that regularly over all of you. I want you to be equipped here to serve and play your individual part. I want us to be a place where your fears and your insecurities are overcome. And like Helen did a bit earlier on, you're to step out in courage and come to the front and use the gifts that God's given you. I want this to be a place where you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. Not trying to do it in your own strength, but more and more experiencing the Spirit's help to live out who Jesus calls you to be. And I want you to grow in your understanding of what it is to be sent in mission. That you're part of an eternal kingdom that is growing to fill the whole earth. And wherever God has placed you, you get the opportunity to play your part in God's great narrative of redemption, of making all things new. And I tell you what, I want this to be the best community the best family that you ever, ever experience. I want this to be a community. I want this to be a family where you are loved, where people not just know your name but care deeply about you, where where people go over and beyond in thoughtfulness and care. Would you like to be part of that kind of church? But if you would, why don't we resolve in our hearts to be 
that kind of church? Would you make that commitment today? Would you commit with me to not just be a part of that kind of church, but would you help create a church like that? I want you to know that as leaders of the church, we are all in to grow that kind of church here. And we want to invite you to join us in working as hard as we can to maintain and attain the unity that Christ died to make possible.